You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. Thank you for joining us. I'm very excited for this episode and for you to hear today's guests talk about gender diversity in Islam and Judaism. This episode is a teaser of sorts for The Revealer's upcoming special issue on trans lives and religion that we are very proud to publish on October 6th at therevealer.org. The special issue features a range of articles on trans lives and religion. We have an article on transgender Buddhist teachers, trans and non-binary Muslims, two-spirit Native Americans, the presence of gender diversity in classical Jewish texts, trans and non-binary Sikhs, how Christians today can support transgender youth, and what we can learn from earlier anti-gay legislation to combat the current wave of anti-trans legislation. You can find all of these excellent articles on October 6th at therevealer.org. For today's episode, we're talking to two authors from the special issue to give you a sense of what the special issue offers. One has done extensive research on trans and non-binary Muslims in North America. The other has done extensive research on gender diversity in Jewish history. I'm thrilled to chat with them both now. Dr. Katrina Thompson, hello. It's great to talk with you. So you have an article in the Revealer's special issue on trans lives and religion called Breaking Down Gender Binaries, Building Muslim Community that is based on the research you did for your forthcoming book that'll be out in early 2023 called Muslims on the Margins, Creating Queer Religious Community in North America. So to write that book and your Revealer article, you met many transgender, non-binary, and queer Muslims. To get us started so we're all on the same page, how would you describe broadly what trans and non-binary Muslims tend to face in some traditional Muslim spaces? Just generally, what would you say are the main issues facing trans and non-binary Muslims today? Thanks, Brett. That's a great question. One of the main issues facing trans and non-binary Muslims are probably the same things that all transgender and non-binary people are not all, but um, people, regardless of their religious background, are facing, which Hmm. is potential Hmm. expulsion from their families. Hmm. families who are not accepting of their gender and sexual identities. But specific to Muslims, I think some of the main issues they're facing are exclusion from religious rituals. So sometimes that can be explicit exclusion. Uh, For example, one of the participants in my research was a trans woman named Amira who was kicked out of a a mosque here in Madison, Wisconsin. Hmm when she tried to pray in the women's area and they Hmm. realized that she was transgender. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also heard stories of trans, non-binary, and queer Muslims not being allowed to have uh, Muslim funerals. And some of the groups that I did research with, like Al-Tawheed Juma Circle in Toronto, they actually have taken it upon themselves to host online global (laughs) funerals for such individuals so that they can still be honored, um, even if their their families don't have a religious funeral for them. Most mosques 
in North America and throughout the world are segregated by gender. Mm-hmm. So that can either be uh, mo- most typically it's men in the front of the room and women in the back or um, sometimes men in a main room and women in a totally different room. But even in spaces that are a little more liberal, they often still have segregation, but with men on one side and women on the other, particularly for non-binary Muslims, it's kind of mm-hmm. unclear where mm-hmm. <laughs> where they should pray, uh, mm-hmm. which which room they would be welcomed in. Another issue that comes up is is homophobic and transphobic sermons. So if someone does find themselves in a mosque or you know chooses to stay in one of the gender segregated sections, they might still hear words that offend them or treat them negatively or in, yeah. or are encouraging other congregants to, yeah. to treat them negatively. Um, and then finally, I would say there are just not a lot of sources, not a lot of Islamic texts or texts mm-hmm. written by contemporary Muslims that um, speak to trans and non-binary and queer mm-hmm. Muslims. Um, mm-hmm. That's starting to change. There's some important work done by people like Scott Kugel and Amina Wadud that is very important to people in the communities that I studied. Uh, it really requires people to search out that kind of work, what they're likely to encounter in like a typical Muslim bookstore that might be attached Mm. to a mosque or something would not include gender diversity or, or, you know, inclusion of folks who are outside the gender norm. Well, so given all of that, you describe in your Revealer article how progressive Muslims have been creating physical spaces and online spaces for years that are welcoming for queer, trans, and non-binary Muslims to pray and fully participate in Muslim life. So I'm wondering, could you pick one such place and describe it for us? What makes it different from some other Muslim spaces or mosques that that you've just described? And what are various things that take place there that make it clearly welcoming for trans and non-binary Muslims? Probably the most interesting and welcoming space that I have visited is El Tawhid Juma Circle in Toronto, which I mentioned earlier. I'll describe that in a moment. But a lot of the other places that I visited, other groups don't have their own regular space and Mm -hmm and also have smaller groups. Got it. So at El Tawhid, they have kind of two spaces that they they use. One is in a, an LGBT center, and the other is in a women's center. The I believe three or four times that I visited in person, it was at the women's center. When you enter, the first thing you'll notice is that there's no gender segregation at all. The space is just very colorful in a way that I think kind of reflects um, it's diversity. So yeah. the, whereas in a typical mosque, you might find, you know, there would be probably carpet that's all one or two colors and the same throughout the room. But here, because they are kind of borrowing the space, they set it up each week and it's just covered with all different color prayer rugs. Um, and it's, mm. it's just, it's very striking when you first enter. Before the, the actual prayer starts, during the sermon, uh, folks sit in a circle. So that's another thing that is different from a typical mosque where people would sit in rows where, as I described earlier, like rows of men in the front of the room and then rows of women in the back of the room. Yeah. Here, folks sit in a circle so they can all hmm. see each other simultaneously mm-hmm. unless one chooses to kind of segregate themselves um, in terms of where they sit. 
it's men and women, trans people, non-binary people all sitting shoulder Hmm. to shoulder in this circle. All of the kind of religious leadership roles, um, they really strive for a diversity of people in those roles. So whereas a typical mosque might have one or two people who are like employed by the mosque and and serve that role week after week, and they would almost always be men. um, Here, they just invite different people to do that each week. And for a long time, they strove to have those roles performed by women, which was a Mm. big difference from typical mosques. But actually, in my book, I describe uh, one of the events I recorded there was a time when uh, Salma, one of the non-binary Muslims I did write about in the Revealer piece, people assumed that Salma was a woman, and Mm. they were asked to lead the prayer that day as a Shia woman. Mm. They led the prayer, and then at the end, one of the other leaders said, you know, we like to to sometimes have Shia leaders if there's someone here because another <laughs> another um, aspect of mainstream mosques is that they are typically led by Sunni leaders mm. unless they're an explicitly Shia mosque. Got so it. when there are Shia members present at El Tawhid, they like to involve them in the leadership as well. So the one of the mosque leaders was saying, oh, the reason I asked Salma to lead today is because she is a Shia woman. Mm. And Salma said, I'm not a woman. I'm I'm non-binary. I'm gender non-conforming, huh. and so this the leader of the mosque kind of hesitated for a moment and said, "Oh, well, should I not ask you to lead prayer anymore then? Because we usually do ask women." And this kind of friendly debate started where people said, "No, no, we, you know, we still want Selma and people like them to lead. So let's think of a different term so we don't call this woman-led prayer." Hmm. And so they went through like trying to think of different terms they could use and they eventually settled on (laughs) non-male so that they would still keep this important difference from a typical mosque but not necessarily limit themselves to people who identified as women. Another difference is most Muslims practice wudu before they pray which is ablution using water so washing your face and your arms and your hands Mm -hmm. um, kind of to create a sense of bodily ritual purity before you perform this this other religious ritual. But at Al-Tawheed, because trans and non-binary Muslims might not feel comfortable going into the gendered bathroom Mm -hmm. there, and also because people are coming from all over where they may not have had a chance to to perform wudu before they get there, um, they typically start each prayer with what's called tayamum, an Arabic term that refers to a form of dry ablution where you, rather than dipping your hands into water and, and cleansing yourself with that, you touch um, the rug or the floor and just pick up some invisible dust and rub that on yourself instead. So it's hmm. uh, more of a symbolic purity than, than the actual water. Mm-hmm. And that um, is a way of just involving everyone in the room as well as, you know, potentially being more inclusive of people who have disabilities who might mm, have difficulty, mm-hmm. you know, putting their foot in the sink in a public mm-hmm. bathroom, which is mm-hmm. often how we are forced to, to do wudu when we're out in public. Another way that this that I find interesting about this is that one of the participants in the circle will lead everyone in doing this. So it becomes a kind of collective ritual as mm. opposed to wudu, which is usually done 
mm-hmm. by yourself in the bathroom or something like that. I think those are the main things that make the space really interesting to enter and to feel very welcoming if you are queer or trans or non-binary. Right. Um, and also that make it very different and unique mm. compared to more traditional mosques. That's good. And that leads me to to want to ask if you are noticing changes happening within broader North American Muslim communities, or do you have a sense that right now changes are mainly only happening within specific designated spaces and online spaces for queer Muslims? Is this transforming sort of broader communities, or right now would you say it's it's a little more of what you've described in these online and communities that are specifically working to be welcoming of trans, queer, non-binary Muslims? It's a little bit hard to answer because as a queer Muslim myself, I have mm. kind of deliberately mm. stayed away from yes. spaces that are not explicitly welcoming. Yeah. Yeah. My sense is that there is a greater welcoming of queer and trans and non-binary Muslims just as people and hate the sin, love the sinner mm-hmm. <laughs> type yes. of yes. Yes. thing that you hear about in Christian spaces. So. Um, welcoming them as people, being conscious of not being openly discriminatory. Hmm. Still, if you get into talking about religious beliefs, you'll find the assumption that it is a sin to to be queer, uh, or at least to engage in, in to act on sexual it. sex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think there is more welcoming in spaces that are kind of culturally Muslim as opposed to mm-hmm. engaged in religious ritual. So there, I mean, the Pew Research Center has shown that I think more than half of American Muslims um, are considered unmasked, that they rarely or never go to a mosque or yeah. don't um, mm-hmm. consider themselves as belonging to one. And there's also a lot of work now on what people call third spaces, which are kind of, as I said, like cultural, but not necessarily engaged in religious ritual. In those spaces, I think you will find that um, queer and transgender non-binary Muslims are welcomed, but not Mm. in spaces where people are praying together. Yeah. And I know from some of my own research that Pew has found that American Muslims are more supportive of issues related to LGBTQ rights at the state level than many other religious groups, including evangelical Protestants and and some conservative Catholics as well. Yeah, I think there's been a sense that because Muslims experience so many stereotypes and prejudice in the U.S. that we should kind of align with with other groups who are also experiencing Mm. that. Mm. Um, But as I mentioned, that doesn't quite extend to being welcoming in explicitly religious spaces. Right. So then the last thing I'd like to ask you, what do you most want people to know about transgender, non-binary, and queer Muslims living in North America today? What I most want people to know is that it is possible to be trans and Muslim, to Mm. be non-binary and Muslim, to be queer and Muslim, to be feminist and Muslim. Mm. I think a lot of um, non-Muslims would be surprised by that. Um, they have, you know, stereotypes about mm. about Muslims as being very homophobic, which, mm-hmm. as you just mentioned, doesn't match the the research really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also for Muslim listeners, I think there are a lot of people who 
are queer or non-binary or just non-normative in in any number of ways who are struggling to find a place for themselves within Islam. And so I hope that they will hear this and, and also realize that there are people like them in the world who will welcome them. Hmm. I also want people to know that even in Muslim spaces that are more conservative, it's not that we are oppressed by Islam. It's rather that there are some Muslims who have very conservative mm. interpretations of Islam. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the religion itself does not um, discriminate against queer or transgender or non-binary Muslims. The mm. discrimination is a creation of people who are interpreting the religion in particular ways. And then I guess finally, again, if I can speak to our Muslim listeners, yeah. I would say if you are transgender or non-binary or queer, and you're seeking community, I hope you'll know that it exists. If it's not near where you live yet, then you can find it online. And there are people in many of the online groups who would be happy to help you to start a local in-person community if that's something that you would find supportive. Hmm. Well, thank you for that. That's very helpful. And and thank you for all of your important work. Listeners can find even more in Katrina's excellent Revealer article out October 6th at therevealer.org. We're now going to pivot a bit to give you another taste of what the Revealer's special issue on trans lives and religion offers. Since we were just talking about trans and non-binary Muslims in the present day, we're now going to chat about how people living outside of the gender binary is not a new thing. It is a very old thing. In fact, some religious texts and leaders described gender diverse people several centuries ago. In this case, we're going to look at the Jewish tradition. To do this, I'm thrilled to be chatting with Dr. Max Strassfeld. He is the author of the book, Trans Talmud, Androgens and Eunuchs in Rabbinic Literature. He also has a great article in the Revealer's special issue on trans lives and religion on the presence of gender diversity in Jewish history, specifically in the Talmud, a compendium of texts written and compiled during the first six centuries of the Common Era, a long time ago. So Max, you say in your Revealer article that the rabbis of the Talmud, writing during the first centuries of the Common Era, identified eight gender categories. So could you tell us what does that mean? How did the rabbis of the Talmud conceive of gender beyond a male-female binary? So first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's really a pleasure to be in conversation with you on such an important topic. In terms of the rabbis and their discussion of gender, they have a really complex taxonomy of gender that I sort of shorthand in English into androgynes and eunuchs. But what I mean by androgynes and eunuchs, or rather what they mean, is way more expansive than we normally would think of when thinking about those terms. Hmm. I'll just introduce them briefly. Great. For the rabbis, eunuchs could be someone who undergoes changes to their body later in life. So that's the kind of association we have with eunuchs, someone who, a man usually, who undergoes castration or some form of changes to their genitalia later. Hmm. But they also thought of eunuchs as people who could be born eunuchs. And what that meant for them was that people could be born without the capacity to reproduce. 
someone that we might today label as intersex, but to them was a form of being a eunuch. And eunuchs could therefore be male or female. Female eunuchs were women who were born without the capacity to reproduce, born with bodily differences. Hmm. All three of those uh, would have been linked and associated with each other in, in various conversations where they're talking about the rules around reproduction. Hmm. There are three different characters that I'm putting under this umbrella androgyne. The first is the androgynos. You can hear the way it sounds like the English word. That's because the Hebrew word androgynos and our English word androgyne both come from the Greek. And the Greek word is just a mashup of the Greek Mm. words for man and woman. Okay. So the androgynos is someone who has uh, two sets of genitalia. And we know that because they talk about the androgynos menstruating and they talk about seminal emission. We know that they're talking about someone with bodily differences and likely mixed kinds of genitalia. Mm -hmm. The other kind of androgyne that the rabbis include in their taxonomy is what we would call in English the two-headed androgyne which for those of you who are familiar with Plato's Symposium or Hedwig and the Angry Inch, (laughs) that story about the two-headed androgyne who are glued together back to back and then Zeus splits them. Mm. The rabbis have their own version of the creation story, which is that the the first human was a two-headed androgyne. And then the third type of person that I'm grouping with these other two types of androgynes is the tum-tum. And the tum-tum is someone whose sex and gender is indeterminate. Some texts describe them as having a flap of skin covering their genitalia. And some texts also say in that flap of skin might tear open at some point. Hmm. For whatever reason, the rabbis aren't sure in the here and now what their sex or gender is. Mm-hmm. And so they're in a kind of liminal space, an in-between space. Mm-hmm. Part of what I find interesting about the taxonomy of the rabbis is how it really doesn't match the ways we organize sex and gender today. They have categories of male and female as well. They also have a really expansive understanding of bodies in the world and think of those bodies as part of the order of creation. So given all that and given the focus that you gave us of their fixation on reproduction and genitalia when they're thinking about classifying bodies. Would you say that we can think of the rabbis of the Talmud as having great or progressive views of gender and being accepting of gender diversity? Those are all modern terms, I know. Uh, Or would you say it's a bit more complicated? Do they ultimately want everyone to adhere to a male-female binary? How do you see all that playing out? Is this liberatory set of texts that you're finding, or, or do you find it a bit more complicated? Thank you so much. It's such a great question. So I have two responses to this. The Hmm. first is that um, I think that the rabbis are not gender radicals by any (laughs) stretch of a modern definition of that. I don't think that their goal is trans or intersex or queer liberation. Hmm. I'll tell you a story from one of the texts. It's my favorite story from the Talmud. There's a really famous rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, 
And for those of you who know something about rabbinic literature, he's generally credited with being the person who edits together the Mishnah, really famous early um, compilation in uh, rabbinic literature. So mm. not just any rabbi, but a really famous rabbi, Rabbi yeah. Yehuda Hanasi. And he wants to learn with a new teacher. And he goes and journeys to that teacher. And the texts say that that famous teacher, his students band together against Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi and don't allow him to study with their teacher. So you have a, a wannabe student and then the other students of that teacher preventing him from learning. Hmm. And the source says they band together against Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi like the fighting cocks of Beit Bukia. The double entendre works also in the <laughs> So they're the fighting roosters, which was apparently Beit Bukia was a place that was famous for its fighting roosters. Who knows? This is the only mention we have of it. Hmm. They only allow him to learn one teaching. So one teaching slips through, and it's a teaching about the androgyne. So the teaching is a, is a debate about the biblical prohibition against men lying with men. Hmm. Here, I disagree with some of my fellow scholars about how to interpret this text. But in my interpretation, the debate is about whether anal sex or vaginal sex, or both constitutes lying with a man. In other words, if a man is having vaginal sex with an androgyne, mm-hmm. does that constitute transgressing Leviticus, the ban hmm. of men lying with men? At a base level, it's asking a question about mm-hmm. what is sex between men? What are men? Mm-hmm. What is masculinity? And it's opening up a whole series of questions that in the here and now, in the contemporary political sphere, we're trying to uh, shut down and foreclose. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of questions that follow when you first stop to ask, when you first don't assume that we know what a man or a woman is. Yes. So I find those questions to have radical potential. Yes. Even though we're talking about literally whether what sex acts with an androgyne person will get a man stoned to death. And there's mm-hmm. absolutely nothing liberatory about the regulation of sexuality and sex and gender in that framework. So that's my first answer. And then my second answer briefly is that I also want to allow for the possibility that just because the rabbis didn't intend them to be gender revolutionary figures doesn't mean that queer and trans and intersex Jews aren't going to come in and reinterpret these Mm, mm -hmm, mm texts the same way Jews have been doing for centuries. Yeah. Well, that brings me to one thing that I do want to ask you. And one of the most moving things to me in your Revealer article is the suggestion that the rabbis of the Talmud saw everyone, including those outside the categories of male and female, the, the categories that you've been describing for us, as made in God's image. And the rabbis codify that idea in the Talmud. 
And I imagine that for many people, that's a powerful religious statement. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What overall, and you've just sort of started introducing us to some ideas, but but broadly, what would you say that looking back on centuries-old religious texts like the Talmud can help us with today amidst battles for transgender equality and recognition that transgender youth exist and deserve dignified care? And I'm so glad that you're doing this themed issue now, particularly because um, these issues are at the forefront of culture battles that are happening across the country and trans youth are being heavily impacted. Yes. And I say that also as the trans parent of a non-binary youth in a conservative state. Hmm. So there are sources in rabbinic literature that talk about how someone who's born a eunuch, so someone who's born without the capacity to reproduce with bodily differences, is created by the hand of heaven, right? Hmm. So for for them, that means that this is natural bodily variation created by God. Yeah. The question of created by God and all the theological ways that plays out, we're seeing today at the forefront of some of these fights over regulating trans people generally, we see that claim being made from a conservative standpoint. In other words, you were created by God in the body that you were given at birth. Therefore, Mm -hmm. don't make any changes to it. Adhering to the sex you were assigned at birth is, is following God's will. And when you dig into these claims a little bit, when you dig into these claims, you see that they're often citing Genesis and specifically Genesis 127, which is a a famous verse about how we're created in God's image. And the end of the verse is male and female, God created them. Mm -hmm. So you see contemporary anti-trans theologies being built on Genesis 127, arguing essentially, these are the sexes that God gave you. Binary gender is God-given. What's particularly ironic to me as a scholar of these sources is that that same exact verse, Genesis 127, male and female, God created them, is what the rabbis used to say Adam, Adam, the first human, was an androgyne. Hmm. It's noticing the plurals. It's noting, noticing mm-hmm. some syntactical and grammatical oddities about that verse. Yes. And one of the earliest interpretations is actually originary creation. The original human was an androgyne. Hmm. So I think we have to be careful when we hear messages around here's what Genesis means and has always meant. Yes. I'm not going to argue with them that their interpretation is wrong necessarily. I think that that that's one way to interpret the verse. But I want to be clear that that's not the only way that verse has been interpreted historically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we care about Jewish interpretations and the history of Jewish interpretations, in fact, there's a rich tradition of interpreting that verse in ways that do not support this idea that there's only Mm. binary gender and that that's God's will. We know that at the heart of some of these uh, anti-trans regulations, whether they're framing it like this or not, there's a religious opposition, specifically a Christian evangelical opposition Mm -hmm. to trans people that's motivating 
these laws, that's at the heart of these laws. And I think it's really important for anybody who in this moment does not feel like their tradition mandates that we must discriminate against trans people, that we interrupt that narrative that religion is inherently hostile to trans people. Mm -hmm. Because they're coming after our youth. They're, they're targeting trans youth. And our youth are vulnerable. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for all of the important work that you're doing. Listeners can find more in Max's Revealer article out October 6th and in his book, Trans Talmud, out now. That is all the time we have for today. Hopefully we gave you a sense of just a little bit of what our special issue on trans lives and religion will offer. I'd like to thank both of our guests, Dr. Katrina Thompson and Dr. Max Strassfeld. You can find Find their articles and many more in the Revealer special issue on trans lives and religion available October 6th at therevealer.org. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing atheists and their place in American politics and culture. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org. Revealer.org.